welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap between what you believe and what you actually experience. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. Ruth Haley Barton once said, There is a truer self waiting to be recognized and breathed into life by the Spirit of God. The war between the false self and the true self is real, and for some of us, is fought over a lifetime. Franciscan priest Richard Rohr feels that there is no more challenging spiritual issue than the problem of the self. Now, today in the podcast, Michael welcomes back one of his colleagues from Restoring the Soul, Brian Becker, where they'll discuss the false self versus the true self and consider questions like, what are the repetitive patterns that keep me deadened to my own desire, and how do I awaken those things? We also hope you come to realize that the call of spirituality is to be fully human and fully alive. You may recall Brian from an earlier Restoring the Soul podcast, where he and Michael discussed the awakening in Brian's life that completely transformed his marriage and his relationship with the Father. We'll put a link to his episode in the show notes. So without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Brian Becker, we are in the Restoring the Soul studio. Welcome back. It's I'm really happy we're talking again today. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be back. We uh, we had you on the program when you joined Restoring the Soul. We've been trying to do this for a long time, and as we've been planning it, uh, we've just been talking about having a conversation. And the phrase, what is God doing in your life, is a common phrase around here. What's God up to in your life? And we were talking a little bit about that specifically as it relates to the story work that you're doing. And you alluded to this at the beginning of the previous podcast that you've done with us. Uh, but talk a little bit about story work, narrative work, what that is, what it's meant to you, and specifically how through this you've been doing personal work, which is such a big part of the counseling work you do around the true self and the false self. Sure. Yeah, I would say, you know, and maybe I'd start with this quote, uh, author, um, I think it's James Hollis, but he said this about Carl Jung. He says, as Jung once put it humorously, we're all walking around with shoes too small for us, uh, living with a constricted view of our journey and identifying with old defensive strategies. We unwittingly become the enemies of our own growth our own largeness of soul through our repetitive history bound choices. And I love that. Yeah. And I think it really captures a lot of my own experience, just feeling like I've, I've kind of settled for something smaller, cramming the largeness of my soul kind of into shoes too small, but that give me a sense of control. They give me a sense of certainty, but they also have a certain amount of deadness, to them. And so there's a way that I think in my journey, um, just been through experiences that have opened me up to looking at what are those things that have constricted me? What, what are the repetitive patterns that kind of keep me deadened to my own desire? And how do I awaken, um, to those things? And I think that's something that God just continues to kind of like crack the smelling salts, kind of wave it in front of my nose and it's like, wake up, wake up to the reality of who you really are and who I'm making you to be. 
Um, and, and so I think that metaphor of just constricted small shoes, but I think also this idea of awakening up. Um, I had a friend, a good friend, Bruce Hedstrom in Dallas, used to give a talk called Waking Up is Hard to Do. And I just think that feels like a good metaphor to me of, of a journey is like I've been asleep and part of that sleepiness is to avoid pain and suffering that I didn't want to. But how do I awaken to that to actually become fully present? Uh, with the life and all the goodness God has for me in that. So let's close in prayer. Let's just, <laughs> let's just end the podcast right there. That was, that was magnificent. And I can't help but comment on the waking up is hard to do for those of you that don't remember Paul Anka and the 1950s doo wop song breaking up is hard to do. I just want to say comma, comma down, baby do down, down. That's a little bit of breaking trivia. down. Like only you can. Yeah. Um, there's so much to what you said. Uh, the first part, the, the whole part about awakening, you talked about deadness and a lack of aliveness, but what has it meant for you to wake up? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think for me, one of the things that has been more of a recent thing is just seeing how much um, – the idea of surviving life rather than really entering into it or enjoying it um, has become more clear to me. And I think that feeling of survival is, you know, I told somebody the other day, like, I feel like I can go through life holding my breath a lot, hoping I just get through it instead of really just being ready. I think the invitation God has had is like, be present with me breathe deeply and just be present and step into life. Do you know I mean? And don't, don't fear that sense of like something bad's going to happen. Um, and so I and, think, and it seems like either for me, um, it's not waiting for something bad to happen, but waiting for something good to happen. Hmm. Like just around the corner, something's going to happen. I'm not making it happen, but it's like this magical belief that something's going to come to me that will make me fit into the right shoes, mm. right? Because I, too, identify with the, the shoes are too small and I'm meant for something bigger, but I am not worthy of or I don't have what it takes to actually bring that about. Yeah. So I wonder if that's like a common either or paradigm of uh, either... I'm waiting for something to happen. You know, my ship's going to come in. I'm going to win the lottery. Or something bad's going to happen. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of just like, how do I just take life on its terms and what God has for me today and be awake to that? Do you mean? And be attentive to that. Um, and I just think there's a sense of, you know, identified as an Enneagram 9 for a long time. And I think the phrase that they often talk that nines need to know is that your presence matters. Do you mean? And I think there's this deep part of me that longs to be seen, but is terrified of it. Hmm. And, and there's something about that phrase. Does my presence even matter here? I, I kind of have this deep desire that it does, but I'm also terrified that it doesn't. And I don't want to find out, you know, that somebody's going to be, call me a posture of fraud. Um, I was watching a, uh, it was 
David Letterman's new show, like Next Up, I think is called or something. Uh, my like next that. guest needs no introduction. I've <laughs> right. seen them all. Yeah. Um, it was with Billie Eilish and he was just, she was talking about this fear of being an imposter, you know, this imposter syndrome that came up. And he, he just made this comment, like he goes, I had that for years. Like I'm, I'm, I'm winning. I'm up front, but I kept waiting for somebody to tap me on the shoulder and say, you don't belong here. Um, something akin to that. And I just go, that feels that way. Like there's this nervousness, like that I'm going to be caught and exposed and, and found out to be something less than what I am. And so I think for me, the, the idea of showing up and risking and offering something of strength, um, and wisdom is, has been a growing, process. I think last time we were on there, I said, you know, it's kind of further up, further in, like that sense of pressing up and in um, has been kind of the repeated theme, like stepping out of the smallness, cutting the laces and stepping out into that. That, my friend, was a can of Coke Zero opening up. So we're going to continue now. <laughs> so, Brian, and Enneagram 9 gives us some categories. But as you talk about the numbness and the believing that you're going to be found out and the, the, the poser, posturing kind of syndrome, where in your story does that come from? Are you able to see kind of the formative places where that smallness came to be? Yeah, I think for me, I, I see, you know, stories, you know, my, my dad, um, passed away, uh, in December. And, you know, part of one of the great gifts my dad gave me was in latter years was telling me about the fear he has because my perception as a kid was he always got it right. He always knew what was right to do. And there was a sense that compared to him, I was a mess up. I couldn't get it right, couldn't do the things right. Like I can remember stories of wanting to work on projects and, and it just never seemed like I could do it with the perfection and the, the skill that he could. So there was always a sense to me, I think that started this sense of less than kind of feeling um, for me. And I think, you know, coming along, I began to go, I don't know that I want to risk trying really hard. What came easy was my sense of humor. Um, I, I was avoided class clown in my Me high school too. class. 1982, <laughs> Fairview High School class clown. I didn't even know that till I found a brochure, but you were too. Yeah. What what year? 81. 81. That, that gives you historical perspective, my dear <laughs> listeners. Two class clowns. Yeah. Whooping it up. Did you hear the one about... <laughs> Got more dad jokes than I care to share. Um, but I think what happened was I began to say, if I can make people laugh, if I can entertain them, maybe they'll keep me around. Mm. And so what began to feel, you know, um, that's really all I have to offer is I can please you. I can um, entertain you. Um, but but I don't know that I can offer anything else than that. I remember doing a leadership intensive uh, through um, Dallas seminaries called the uh, lead experience. And part of that, you had to write out your life map and, and through that, look at the themes of that life map. And when I wrote out my life story, I remember the theme that just stood out, like it just popped out of a phrase was, um, please, everyone trust no one. Wow. And it was just like, yeah, that says a lot right there. Like, I, I don't know that I can really 
trust you with the fullness of what I think, trust you with showing up. I can please you. I can entertain you. I can try and accommodate you. I don't know if I can really risk being fully present with you and offer something in counter to you. So let me ask, how long had you been a follower of Jesus at that point when you did that program at Dallas and wrote um, those out? Yeah, I was actually in, um, I was overseas in Singapore and they, they came to us, Dave Connie and Bruce Sedstrom and Bill Lawrence were the people that kind of led that week long intensive. Um, and so that would have been 2003. So I would have been 40 at, that would have been my 40th year. So, and I'd been in ministry since I was um, probably 23, 24. So, okay. So, close to 20 years into ministry, yep. longer than that, knowing the Lord. And you're walking around with, I must please everyone and trust no one. And on the surface, especially the please part, might look very, very Christian. Yeah. The trust no one might be a little more suspicious, but. Those beliefs, some people would speak of those in terms of vows or even agreements, those would profoundly affect your faith. And to trust no one and to think that you can just switch gears and trust God deeply, yeah. that's not possible. Well, that's where I would say, you know, the false self, that, and, and that's kind of what I, I view this kind of shoes too small as we cram ourselves in that is it has these elements of it affects the way I perceive the way I protect, the way I present myself. And the perception is, how do I perceive myself? How do I perceive others? But also, how do I perceive God? And, and what do I view of him? And I think for a lot of years, I have a friend, and he, he said this phrase, you know, I know God loves me because he kind of has to. Do you mean? That's his job. Right. But it, if he was coming to get us and I was late, he wouldn't wait around for me. And I resonated with that. Like, I think there was kind of like, yeah, you're kind of in because you're part of humanity. And that was offered to humanity. There wasn't a sense of great fondness for me. Um, and I think that's been part of that journey is how do I realize like God isn't just generally like me because I'm a human being, but he very specifically likes me, likes who I am and likes what's really unique about me. And I think that's been this ongoing releasing of that and the freedom of that that comes with that. So I want to play devil's advocate here for a moment because I think most of our listeners are tracking with this. But in Philippians 2, uh, verse 3 and 4, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourself, not looking for your own interests, but to the interest of others. And I've heard this from time to time where people say, you know, you're talking about our shoes are too small and we need to wear bigger shoes and we need to step out, you know, and uh, really, you know, become more alive and full. And isn't that just pride? And shouldn't we have small shoes? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the John the Baptist saying to Jesus, uh, he must increase, I must decrease, which, by the way, is about a public platform. It's not about an existential reality that John needed to somehow be less John. But just address this issue of how people might think that it's very Christian and godly to have really small shoes and to not make much of a splash in the world. Yeah. I think I, I go back to, you know, um, C.S. Lewis, I think it's in his weight of glory, but he talks about if we truly saw each other in the fullness of 
our glory that he's designed us for, we'd be inclined to worship each other. There's a largeness to us that God intends that I think brings great glory to him. And there's a mindfulness of it. I think the, the idea, when I think of false self, I think it goes two directions. One is this kind of superhuman version of a false self, which is like, I need to be bigger, better, stronger, more capable, more serving, bigger, you know, platform. I think, you know, narcissist kind of falls into that. There's a largeness of it, but that's not who they were meant to be. There's also this subhuman and and maybe that's the part that I drifted more towards, which is like, I'm really confined or not. But I think the call of spirituality is to be fully human, fully alive. And I think that largeness comes, and when it comes, I think there's a peacefulness about it. There's a restedness that it's not about self-promotion, but it's just about enjoying the delight of God in that place. So it doesn't, to me, when I've had those glimpses of that, it doesn't, it feels like just a delight and a rest, and mm. there's nothing about self-promotion to it. It's more about self-acceptance than self-promotion um, yeah. and not saying uh, I suck and I'm accepting that or I don't have gifts or talents or I'm not smart and I'm accepting that because it's it's not anti-becoming, but it's like I'm okay just the way I am and who I am as opposed to in my story, when I go back and finish my PhD, mm-hmm. then I'm okay because yeah. then that PhD makes me bigger, better, smarter, um, then I'm one of the club, then I'll have the big, you know, speaking contracts, then I'll really have something to say. Yeah. I think it was Brene Brown who said that shame causes us to either make ourselves bigger or to make ourselves smaller. And so yeah. the self-acceptance is not being ruled by shame, but being embraced by love and the compassion and the love of God, but also a self-compassion. Yeah. And that that makes a lot of sense. And, and, and that's where I would say maybe this largeness of soul is different than this inflated ego, kind of like a mascot head. It's hollow on the inside. Do you know what I mean? Versus this largeness of soul is is something of substance. In fact, when I went through that leadership development, that was one of the words is that, you know, my true self is about becoming solid, about becoming a man of substance. Like there's something depth there. Um, do you know what I mean? I remember some of the feedback that I'd gotten from other people I was around. They go, we really like Brian, but we have no idea what he stands for. Do you know what I mean? And that was hard to hear because it's like, that's not who I want to be. I think there's something more there, but I don't know how to step towards that. I don't know how to offer that without exposing myself and being vulnerable. Um, and I think that's where Brene Brown's words of, you know, the, the path of vulnerability leads you to be able to start experiencing the empathy or the love of God. And I think when you start taking that route, you begin to experience both his delight and love, not just through that spiritual relationship, but people also that you can begin to actually receive from them the goodness um, that they're trying to offer you in that. So you're pretty well acquainted with the small shoes and how you live that way. Uh, But, what were some of the factors that led to you beginning to wake up? There was this event, these men that spoke into your life and the content and the, the safety and the structure of the lead program. But after that, what were other factors that made you begin to go, oh, this is a, this is a false self? Yeah, I think um, 
I think, it, you know, definitely I would look at that and go, the thing I was most aware of was, you know, definitely in my relationship with my wife, like there was just a sense of like, I'm here, but not here. I think we talked about that in our last show, like I'm not really showing up. And, and I think that just the call to have to step up and into my marriage was a significant part of that. And that continues to be true. I think the same with ministry was like, I was present, I was doing a lot of work, I was really busy, but I wasn't necessarily stepping up and taking risks in the way I wanted to. And and for me, the risk wasn't about going to harder places or, you know, doing greater, bigger things. To me, I think when I stepped into my counseling degree to pursue that, like that felt like a huge risk. Like I just remember when you're sitting down in practicum as a 42-year-old and they're going, okay, you're going to meet with somebody tomorrow. And you're like, like I've been here a semester. What <laughs> makes you think I have anything to offer these people? But you then begin to realize like the greatest gift in the room is me. Yeah. And do you actually believe that? Or do you think it's something you learned? Is it something you need to strive for and, and remember so you can say it? Or is it just the fact that you're present and you can offer that? And so th this phrase that's been tumbling around my head, I, I, I just have been captured again by the Jesus feeding of the 5,000. You know, he asked the disciples, like, how are you going to feed these people? And, and he does that, I think, to reveal kind of the way they think about it. You know, mm -hmm. one says, why don't you send them away and make them get their own food? You know, one says, well, if we had to work, we'd have to work two years to, to feed them. You know, and one goes, here's this little lad, you know, who brought his lunch, but what's that amongst so many? And you just see these different ways of approaching life in this problem. But I've just found it fascinating that God fed 5,000 through a little boy with a lunch. Do you mean? And it was, I don't know if he, he came forward. We don't know that, but I just imagine this little boy, cause kids are like that, right? I've got five loaves and two fishes. And they're right, like, right. what is that? Like, and you just think about him showing up with his poverty mm. and then God taking that and multiplying that. And that's been a great phrase for me is I just need to show up in my poverty, knowing that God's going to make that into wealth. And again, I don't know that poverty is the best word, but I have, that's what I feel a lot of times is I'm showing up kind of naked and with nothing, kind of like with a squirt gun facing a forest fire. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But, but it's like in that God shows up. And I think that's been one of the greatest joys of counseling has been that happens all the time. Yeah, and there's nothing like sitting down with another human being. I remember that same experience in grad school when they're there oftentimes in pain in a crisis and they're expecting you to be helpful. And I think every counselor has been, unless they're a complete poser, in a place where they're going, I have no idea what to do. And trusting that there may be a solution or something to say, but trusting that it's actually the human presence yeah. and that now we know that even neurobiologically, like sitting with you and me being grounded and breathing and aware of my own stress reaction. So if I'm feeling anxious right now, talking to you in this podcast, that after you talk, then I better have something clever to say. And then after I say something clever, hopefully you'll say something that will 
be compelling, but really set me up to then say something even more clever. And I'm not focused on and present to you. I'm completely focused on myself because of my own anxiety. And it takes a long time to be able to get past that. Yeah. And, you know, somebody might say, well, that's just self-centeredness. Where's a sinful center people? No, I'm anxious and I'm embodied in a way where it's really scary to be just with somebody yeah. as opposed to let me draw on all my capital. And I sure relate to the humor stuff, too, about whether it's with you or somebody else. It's just so easy to make jokes, uh, to banter, which is fun and in and of itself not wrong. Thank heavens. Yeah. But to do that and to never pause and say, how are you doing? Or can I tell you how I'm doing? Can you pray for me? That kind of thing. Well, that's where I would say, you know, one of the shifts for me was I was using humor mostly to self-protect and self-provide. And I think one of the things God changed in that is he's, he, he didn't take away that humor, but he said, I want to use it for a different purpose. And I think he often uses my humor to set the table for deeper conversations, yeah. to bring safety and comfort, as well as just, again, an invitation. There's something more here, and it's okay that we go there. Yeah. Let's wrap up in a minute. I think I want to end with this question, and we will come back and talk more about this. For somebody who's listening, and maybe they've just started counseling, or maybe they're reading a book where some of these categories about shame and the false self and the true self are there, what are some indicators to you that the false self is in operation? And what are some signs, maybe just from your own story again, that the true self is starting to be released? Because... The true self is not something we have to go look for or take a class on how to become it. It's already there. It's within us. It's an imperishable yeah. seed. It's part of our design. Yeah. Well, I've often said the false self is about usually about striving. That would be one word. And, and where you sense that kind of hamster on a, a spinning wheel, kind of trying to attain something in and of yourself. I'm going to make this work. Um, and and I think your words are great words, like the true self part feels to me more like it's about unshackling something to let it be released. Do you mean in that? And I think that's where you start sensing the shift from striving into resting into and releasing something good. So it's not the absence of activity, but it's the ac absence of reactive kind of activity. Um I would say the other piece is for me, and, and this might be unique to my own story, but the idea of deadness, that there was a real sense that there wasn't room in my shoes for desire to really know what I want. There was room for me to attend to other people's desires mm. and what they want, but there wasn't room for me to be really awake to what I want. And so that oftentimes is, can I slow down to pay attention what do I really want? I just think it's a profound question that Jesus asked the man at the, at the pool. Like, what do you want? And it's like, he even goes into, well, let me tell you how my striving hasn't worked and why this and that. Do you know what I mean? And he's like, no, what do you want? Hmm. Um, and so I think that idea of what am I doing with desire and where is desire at play? Am I demanding it? I must have this. Do you know what I mean? Am I, am I deadening it? Am I killing it? Or am I living well with it? Am I naming it, bringing it to the Lord and offer, 
Do you know what I mean? And feeling both the ache of desire because it's not going to be fully met in this life. But am I also willing to experience the tastes that he wants to give me of that desire and for him to meet me in the midst of that? Um, I think the idea of desire, I mean, that's probably one of the, you know, jokes with my wife and I is she would ask me, what do you want? And I'm like, I know what I don't want. I don't know. You know, it's like I've, I've figured that part out, but I don't, you know, it's hard for me to even say where to go for dinner. Do you mean, and what do I really desire in that? And so I think there's an awakening to desire that's going on. I think there's a, um, a dealing with the restlessness. And I think that's part of that striving that I can attend to that and, mm. and begin to settle and, and rest into that. Um, I appreciate you talking about desire as part of the true self. I think for me, especially with an addictive background, not just with substances and sex and things like that, but desire has been oriented toward things that would reinforce my false self. Yeah. So my desire was at one point to go to medical school so I could be doctor, so I could be powerful, so I could be away from home all the time. Uh, I know that's a pretty dark strategic thought like, oh, I'll do this career so I never have to uh, like uh, be home and I can I can work 18 hours a day. Uh, desire to have a certain kind of watch. I've talked about watch lust and watch covetousness uh, since I'm a watch collector. Or if I had this car or, you know, when I was single, if I had this girlfriend or at times, you know, when things are hard in my marriage, well, if I had a different wife and desire directed toward bolstering the false self versus a deeper desire of what was my heart made for. Yeah. And there's a lightness and there's a freedom with that. Whereas with the other, if that doesn't happen, if I don't get the watch, the car, the girl, then I'm going to be depressed or I'm going to be really anxious until it does happen. So there, everything we're talking about as you're talking, I'm just aware of really feeling within myself a longing for that lightness and the freedom of desiring in a way that's related to the true self. Yeah. And maybe I would say it this way, because in those desires, even as you mentioned it, it's like, I think there's ways desires well up and we attach them to things like a watch or like a profession or a career. And then we think, well, what we want is that career or we want that watch. But it's about a deeper desire. Right. Like that's where I go. I think you're wanting to be a doctor because you want to heal people. Right. And, and I that's think, what I've done since then. But despite that, for different reasons, and I found the freedom in it. Yeah. So thank you for pointing that out. Aquinas' idea that beneath our sinful behaviors or beneath the misdirected desires, there's a legitimate God-given appetite. Yeah. And I think we could say that with, with anything. Yeah. Um, including with sex, you know, the, the, the desires that we want connection. We want connection to feel. and being wanted. And yeah. Yeah. I think uh, Brene Brown's quote that undid me was, you know, greatest threat to belonging is fitting in. And I go, that's totally true. But if, if that's true, I don't have any idea what belonging is mm. because my whole life it's been about fitting in. So let's unpack that and then we'll wrap up. The greatest threat, threat to belonging is fitting in. Yeah. Say more about that. Well, it's, I think that's where you're cramming in. You, you know, like, I'm here to please you. I'm here to fit in. I'm here to make you happy with me so you keep me around versus I'm here to belong. And that means I bring the fullness of myself to that. And I think that's one of the definitions God put on my heart was intimacy is always a place where all of you welcomes all of me. 
I love that. Yeah, you've shared that with me before, and I've quoted you multiple times and only given you credit once. <laughs> so thank you for that. So here's the big question. Where do you want to go for dinner? <laughs> I think chili rellenos will always be on top of my list. I think that's a deep, beautiful, God-given desire. That's the food, but what restaurant? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think I like my last ones at the Hacienda that I had chili rellenos there, so... And there you have it, my Hermanas and Hermanos, Chili Rellenos, <laughs> as we wrap Crispy. out. What's that? Crispy Chili Rellenos. Crispy Chili Rellenos, <laughs> as, we, as we wrap up this episode of Restoring the Soul. Brian, thanks for being on the program and um, look forward to our next conversation. Yeah, likewise. Bless you. So we've wrapped up another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. In fact, the heart of what we have done for nearly 20 years is intensive counseling. When you can't wait months or years to get out of the rut you're in, our intensive counseling programs in Colorado allow you to experience deep change in half-day blocks over two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com. RestoringTheSoul.com.